<clears throat> Once again, thank you for the privilege of coming and opening God's Word up to us and helping us to focus on the Incarnation. I didn't realize that Paul was preaching on the Incarnation, or I probably would have preached on something else. It's dangerous to step into another man's series. We're going to look at a lot of Scripture today, so um, in preparation for that, let's open, or let's, uh, yeah, let's open up in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the glory of worship. We thank you that we worship a glorious God whose glory is such that we can only imagine it through the revelation of scripture that your glory is so great that it is beyond human full imagination. We praise you that this is a glorious event because those who were in their sins, who were haters of God, who were walking in rebellion against you and wanted nothing to do with you, would have, if possible, eliminated you from existence, now have had a change of heart, have been brought to life, have had their eyes open, the veil removed, been raised from the dead, so that now we want to worship you, and we desire that you be glorified in this time as we look at your word. And so we pray that as we consider the incarnation, the coming of God in the flesh, the purpose of that, that you by your spirit would bless us, that not only would we gain an understanding, but that we would gain in uh, appreciation and amazement and devotion to you because of what you have done in the incarnation. Bless us now, open our minds, open our hearts, we pray in the glorious name of Christ, amen. Have you ever asked the question at this time of the year, what in the world is going on out there? By out there, you know what I mean, the culture. You look at the culture at the Christmas season and you scratch your head and say, what in the world is going on? For some reason this year, the, the main song I have heard on the radio, I drive uh, delivery on Tuesdays, down through South Georgia and love it, so I get three hours of listening to the radio or a book or something of that sort. The main Christmas song I have heard this year is, Last Christmas I gave you my heart, and the very next day you gave it away. And I think, what in the world? This is, this is the main message of Christmas, is last Christmas? I gave you my heart and you gave it away. Why, you good for nothing? So... I gave it to somebody else, and they value it. A song of revenge. <laughs> Merry Christmas. And then so, so much of the other stuff that goes on. We know the movement to replace the word Christmas with holiday, and uh, so much more with that. There's a, a, one of the stations I listen to is a, is a good station. It's quality. Lots and lots of research articles. That's why I listen to it, but... They've played Christmas music since before Thanksgiving, but they're missing the theme. They don't know what it's really about. Christmas songs have replaced the hymns of Christmas. Christmas songs, jolly old St. Nicholas, which I like. I like Christmas songs, but they've supplanted and replaced so much of the solid biblical Christian hymns. So we ask, what's going on out there? Does anybody know what 
this Christmas season or this incarnation season is all about. Why incarnation? Because the Christmas season is about when God came in the flesh. And we have to be careful lest we think, oh, I've heard that so many times before. It's, it's grown kind of boring. No. <laughs> God in the flesh. It's a mystery in the sense that we cannot comprehend the full meaning of that. But what do we celebrate this time of the year? We celebrate that God has come in the flesh. And God has come in the flesh not haphazardly. He's come in the flesh with intent or with purpose. I entitled the sermon Incarnation with Intent because the two eyes together sounded good. But it's really incarnation with purpose. And here's why I did that. We're going to look this morning at three passages of Scripture. We're not going to be able to go in the depth of those passages that we might like to because I want the three passages to come across. And these three passages have been chosen because they all use a special word. It's a Greek word, hina. Very simple word of three letters, hina. It's a word used to introduce purpose. It tells us the purpose. And so in each of these passages, we're being told part of the purpose of the incarnation or the intent of the incarnation. And frankly, I think all three of these passages that employ this word are astounding. They are astounding. If you disagree with that this morning, not in the way that it's preached, but in the truth of the passage, then I would tell you this morning you're wrong. <laughs> they are astounding. In fact, I came across another one this morning as I asked my wife for an Advent book that she'd been reading by John Piper, and in it, it starts the introduction with another purpose clause. Christ says, I want them to come to me, those that you have given me, to come to me, Hina, in order that you be glorified. Purpose of the incarnation, Christ be God be glorified through Jesus Christ. So let's look at the first passage of Scripture. It is in Matthew chapter 1, a very, very well-known incarnation or Christmas text. We're going to begin in verse 18, and we'll read through the end of the chapter and delight ourselves in the word of God this morning. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. 
So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife. And he did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Passage is brilliantly written so that the last part of that is this. They called his name Jesus. So with all that, and, and I'm sure you've had, heard this passage expounded many times. You know the details of this passage. Many of these themes in here are in our hymns, songs. But I want us to look at verse 22. Verse 22 is a powerful and insightful verse. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Look at that verse 22. In verse 22 you have this. So, that, so all this was done. That's explanation. That. That. Or in some translations, in order that. Or so that. That's our word right there. That's the Hina word. And you know what? That Hina word right there other than the person of Jesus Christ, is indeed perhaps the focus of the text. It introduces us to God's purpose. The purpose in the incarnation. It happened so that, with this purpose in mind, God uses language very specifically. The Greek language is the most specific language the world has ever known. And he uses Hina here at this point to tell us the purpose of this. Now, draw your minds to this. So all, so all. I find myself, probably like you at times, reading through these familiar texts, looking over some of the words, just blowing through them. But Matthew says this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So all of this, all of this. Now, we might take that back just to where I started reading this morning, where Matthew says, now the birth of Jesus was as follows, but hold on a minute. The text really doesn't start there. And so when Matthew says, so all of this, he's going beyond that. You go back to verse 1. Matthew's including all of this. And you know what you have from verse 1 through verse uh, 17, you have genealogy. 14 generations followed by 14 generations followed by 14 generations till the coming of the Christ. Could you manage a time schedule like that? I can't. Somebody asked me, we, we went to breakfast at our church this morning, had a uh, church breakfast and headed over here and somebody asked me, well, are you going to make it in time? And I said, well, yes, my concern is not making it in time to the church. We're, we're going to do that. 
my concern is with these passages, can I, can I stop preaching in time? <laughs> and they said, you'll have a problem with that. Driving from one church to another on a Sunday morning, that's a tough schedule, isn't it? We're talking here, 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. And then these details of the birth of Jesus Christ. And Matthew says this, all of this, all of this, every single bit of it. What's going on here? Well, it's not just that Mary is pregnant of the Holy Spirit. It's that Mary has been born. She's got parents. They live in Nazareth. Joseph has been born. He's got parents. All of this has been orchestrated by God to get to this point. And so when we read this, <coughs> excuse me, when we read this, all of this was done. Every single detail of it was done with intent and purpose. Whew. It's heavy. What was the intent and purpose? When I say heavy, that connects to glorious. The word glory is properly translated weight, the weightiness of it. The weightiness of this is glorious. All of it was done with this in mind, that it might be fulfilled what the Lord said. And he said it through the prophet. So that it might be fulfilled what the Lord said roughly now, roughly 700 years ago in the text that we were called to worship with. 700 years ago, God has orchestrated that 700 years to the point where his word is being fulfilled. Now that is so vitally important to us. There are over 300 prophecies of the coming of, of the birth of Jesus Christ. 300 prophecies over a long period of time. I said to, uh, actually to our pastor who is preaching on a, that subject this morning. I said, you know, th those prophecies that they were fulfilled, it's like one in 300 million. And because he'd been indulged in that study, he said, no, 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 it's much higher than that. It's like 300 trillion. Settle our minds on this for a moment because there's great application to it. One in 300 trillion chances of those prophecies coming to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. If you hit 50% of that, you're pretty good. God has hit every single one. So that the, the writer here, Matthew, tells us this under the inspiration of the Spirit. All of this happened with this purpose, with this intent in mind, so that what God had said through the prophet, it is the Lord who spoke. What God said through the prophet would come to fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And what specifically did he say? He said this, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. God said this to Isaiah, the time is coming when a virgin 
will have a child. And that just don't happen. The virgin had a child. And he was speaking here of the Christ. So that's the, the first purpose that we look at. The first uh, incarnation with intent is so that all that the Lord said, and it's so vital that it was spoken of the Lord, <laughs> spoken of the Lord through the prophet, but it was the Lord speaking that it would come to fulfillment. And his word would be fulfilled. This is something that occurs several times in Matthew. Turn over to chapter 2 and look at verse 15. Chapter 2 and verse 15. We'll go back to verse 14. It picks up the thought. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled. The that there? That's a henna. That's a purpose. This happened with this purpose so that it would be fulfilled. You catch that? This had to happen to fulfill the word spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. God had prophesied it. I will call my son out of Egypt, like he called Israel out of Egypt. And these things had to take place to fulfill the word of the Lord. Again, we won't look at them, but Matthew uses that formula quite a few times. Because he's writing to show us what God has said in the Old Testament is being fulfilled now. Before we look at the next passage, let me bring three points of application to us. Three points of application. The first application should be this. As we read this and realize all these generations, all these events came to fulfillment because God said they would, I to put us, once we contemplate it, once we ponder it, we ruminate upon it, we think about it, it ought to put us into an absolute state of amazement. An absolute state of amazement. I've tried to do so many things in my life according to a schedule and failed so many times. And yet God orchestrates the universe. He orchestrates human history Think if he just managed, forget all the Gentile nations, he just managed the Jewish nation, just Israel, to get to the point where his word would be fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ on that night in Bethlehem, where he who is the bread of life would be born in the house of bread, Bethlehem, the house of bread. Y'all, we ought to be in just absolute amazement over this God, over this incarnation season. That's a rebuke to some of us because we read some of these things with a yawn. We, we go over them thinking, oh, this again. We had this last year and the year before that and the year before that. You can understand the world saying that because they don't understand. They don't have the insight of what went on at Christmas, the incarnation. God fulfilled his word. You know, we need to be in absolute amazement over this God. Secondly, then, it ought to bring us to the point of worship. It ought to bring us to worship. Now, th that's what this book is about. 
That's what the book is about. It's to bring us to the point of worship, supplying the high priest that we need, the cleansing of his blood, the change of heart, to come into the presence of God, to worship him. How we ought to worship God for this. And, and why would we say that with reference to this? Throughout the Psalms, throughout the Psalms, you have the, the resounding theme of look what God has done. Worship him. Worship him because of what he has done. Mighty are the works of the Lord. Bow and worship him. Throughout the Old Testament. In fact, if you go to Revelation chapter 4, the throne room scene, the angels are gathered together. They're singing. They're praising God. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, you are worthy to be worshipped. Why? Because you have created all things and by your power they exist. And so as we see what God has done here, mighty work of God, it ought to stir in our hearts a desire to worship. And then thirdly, it ought to increase our faith. It ought to make us grow in faith. Why so? Because of this. Because all of this was done, not by accident, not by happenstance. Just happened to flow out this way. No, all of this was done that it would be fulfilled what God had said. By the way, that word fulfilled there is a, is a rich word as well. It's a very vital word to our Christianity. And so Christian, grow your faith. What this is saying is this. All of this in the Old Testament that the Lord had said, he meant it and he's working it out. Which means what he has said here in the New Testament, he's going to work out exactly as he said. And we can set our faith in that, in him. It, it, it doesn't necessarily mean, in fact, there's no necessity to it at all. It doesn't mean that we'll understand all the details. I, like you, I've asked myself many times, what is the Lord doing in this? Why did this have to happen? He's got intent and purpose in it, whatever it was. And his word, Matthew says this time and time again, so it would be fulfilled what the Lord said to help us to build our faith. Listen, if God said he will do it, he will do it, he will do it on his timing. So that's the first Hina clause. The first purpose of the incarnation is to fulfill what God said he would do. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we'll look at the second purpose clause. The second purpose clause. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Interesting when it comes to preaching the word. I, I have not sniffled all day. <laughs> I, I didn't sniffle yesterday that I know of, but for some reason my sinuses decided to just imagine that it's saying amen. It's my sinuses giving the amen. Second Corinthians chapter eight and verse nine. I, I encourage you to memorize this passage. Not typically thought of as a Christmas text, but y'all. All these passages in the New Testament are Christmas texts. Let's go back to verse 8. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For, explanation here, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, in order that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, let me ask you something. Do you like that text? <laughs> I love it. You see how it connects to Christmas? He who was rich became poor. That's the incarnation. He who was rich took on human flesh. He just take, didn't take on human flesh. He did it in abject poverty. He did it in poor circumstances. It was surrounded by horrible conditions. It was at the Christmas season of the year. Well, again, let's explore this text a little bit, and then we'll draw some application from it. Notice what he says first off. He's speaking to the Christians here. He has been in Corinth. He spent some time in Corinth. This is Paul. And he taught the Corinthians the ways of God. He taught them the Holy Scriptures. He instructed them in the way that they should walk, which was really a phenomenal thing. Corinth sat at a very strategic place where ships would come from down here and they would port and then ships would come from the top. And so it had a, a constant influx and flow of the nations. And with the constant influx and flow of the nations, they had all of the perversions that you could possibly have. It was a wicked city. We are told in the histories that from the uh, temples of worship of the false gods that every night probably on the average of 2,000 harlots, temple prostitutes, were sent down into the city to help the people in Corinth worship. That's the kind of city we're talking about. And yet the gospel comes. This, this mighty army comes. God sends this massive army into Corinth to conquer it for the gospel. He sends between two and four people but he sends the gospel, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And people are changed, they're transformed, and a church is planted, and it is growing. We, we believe it was thriving from the indications that we have in Scripture. And then Paul writes to them, and, and he's reminding them in this very specific context, you know this. You know this. For you know now, it's quite convicting. I challenge you to mark that when you read it. Because there's many, many, many times where the Apostle Paul says to the people he's writing to, you know this. I'm reminding you of it. You know this. You've been taught this. And he's using that as the foundation to press the application to them that he wants to press. You know this. So I said I was going to wait for the application, but here's the application to us. Y'all, do we know this? Do we know what we should know from the scriptures? I'm constantly amazed at the writer to the Hebrews. If, if the writer to the Hebrews preached in a lot of our churches, those churches would be empty. Because he confronts them. And he says in chapter 5, at the end of chapter 5 of Hebrews, I want to tell you about the, the priesthood of Jesus Christ after the order of Melchizedek. And I sit there thinking, yeah, tell me, I want to know this. I want to tell you 
how Christ's priesthood follows the priesthood of Melchizedek. He says, but I can't tell you because you've fallen asleep. He uses a, a key word there, a word that is used of, uh, of the lions on the Serengeti that in the, the heat of the noonday sun, they just flop over and they go to sleep. He says, that's what you've become. When it comes to the things of God, you're a lion sleeping in the midday. By this time, he says, you should know the deep things of the faith. You should have left the elementary principles of the faith. So he's rebuking them. They don't know what they're supposed to know. And he goes on about the elementary things of the faith, of baptisms, of repentance. He labels some things that I shake my head and say, wow, I better go back and review these. And they're elementary. So when he says here, when he's, he's using this as strong argument, you know this. What do you know? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know one of the ways to understand grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. That, that's a good way to think of it. Because it's, grace is not just the washing away of our sins. That would, be, that would be super, wouldn't it? Grace is the washing away of our sins, the guilt and the shame that comes with our sins. But grace also is imputing the righteousness of Christ to us. He takes away and he gives. And Paul's saying, you know this. And one of the applications here is, is central to knowing that. You take away our sins. You, you take away our unrighteousness. You clothe us in the glorious righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is grace. God takes and he gives and he gives good. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Explain a little bit more, Paul. Paul says this, that though he was rich, he points us to the riches of Christ. Prior to the incarnation, prior to Jesus Christ coming in the form of man, he was rich beyond our ability to imagine. Really, beyond our ability. Paul says in Ephesians 3.21, he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or imagine. You cannot, I cannot, we connect collectively cannot imagine all that God can do. Nor can we imagine his riches. That's how Jesus Christ was. If, if, we, want to, if we want to try to visualize it in human terms, visualize the most incredible palace you could possibly think of and the most incredible throne room and the most majestic throne and then sitting on that throne is the king of kings and he's, he's, it's just opulent. And then wrap all that up and throw it away because it doesn't come close. He was rich. He was rich. Scriptures tell us about that richness. Part of that richness, focus of that richness was a total and complete, harmonic, uh, joyful, delightful relationship in the Trinity. Total satisfaction. They didn't need anything. They didn't need a drink of water. God is the triune God. Didn't need a, a hamburger. <laughs> didn't need a steak. Total satisfaction in the Godhead. Whew. Wouldn't you like to have that at some point? Just be totally content. The riches. But then he says this, 
And this is, this is the gospel that Paul preaches. Yet, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. He set that opulence aside. And he became poor. For you. Christian, for you. If you're not a Christian, come to him. Come now. Come to Jesus Christ. And it's for you. He offers it to you. He set his riches aside. I honestly sat in my living room. I think it was yesterday or maybe even this morning. Smallish living room. Got a fire burning. My wife's got it decorated just wonderfully for Christmas. And I got contemplating. Would I give this up? Would I become, what if I had to become poor to help somebody else out with Boy, that was a tough one to wrestle with. I haven't concluded yet. But Jesus Christ gave it up to come. Philippians chapter 2 helps explain it even further. He came in the form of a man, in the form of a servant, a douloi. He came as a slave. Oh, our culture hates that word slave, doesn't it? Jesus Christ came as a servant, a slave. He gave it up. Now comes the purpose clause. The purpose of the incarnation. Why did Christ come through the virgin and into that poverty? Look at this, latter part of it. In order that through his poverty, you might be made rich. And the way that that's constructed, the, the syntax is such to bring us to that concluding point. He did that so that you would become rich. Exclamation point. Why Christmas? So that you would become rich. Why the incarnation? God's purpose? So that you would become rich. Now, while we're studying the scriptures, what do we think of when we think of riches? Huh? Right? God wants you to be a millionaire. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about something much higher. It may well be that God does in his, in his glory make you a millionaire. He might put you in poverty for life, but you'll be rich. What are the riches? The riches of the, of the, of the glory. What would you say? That's exactly right. I was going to say the riches of the glory of the inheritance and the saints. And when we think of the inheritance and the saints, we typically think of all this stuff. Of course, we're Americans. <laughs> we got to think about all this stuff. But Miss Jettle is exactly right. The inheritance is God himself. You don't, you don't just get some money from Daddy Warbucks. You all remember the Annie movies? You don't just get the money from Daddy Warbucks. You get Daddy Warbucks. poor connection because God is much richer than Daddy Warbucks. Y'all, let this sink in. God's desire was that, and if you're a Christian, he has made you rich. He's given you the riches of Jesus Christ. You know one of those riches? Fellowship of the saints. It's one of the riches of Jesus Christ. A, a new humanity, the church of Jesus Christ, the fellowship of the saints. Well, 
some applications from this, three quick applications. Number one is what? Be amazed. <laughs> be amazed. Be flabbergasted. Be dumbfounded. Be bamboozled. Wow. Jesus Christ sent by the Father to suffer poverty so that I, who was in spiritual poverty, would be made rich. How can it be? How can it be? Newton was right. Grace is amazing. If that grace gets hold of your heart, what's the second application? Worship. 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 Third application is this. Use your riches to God's glory. Use your riches to God's glory. Number one in that, delight in what God has done. Take delight in what God has done. Secondly, use them to bless others. This, this context in which Paul brings up this very powerful teaching, Christ became poor with the purpose of you becoming rich, it is in the context of two chapters of giving to help other churches. In fact, Paul says here, the Macedonian churches, look at them, follow their pattern. They're, they're suffering up there. There's famine in the land. And yet, in their poverty, they took up a collection and they sent it. And apparently, Paul is the one carrying it to the Jerusalem churches who were being persecuted and needed help. You know what the American Christian way usually is? Well, I can't really afford to give right now, but, 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 but when I can, I'm going to give. I know that because I've talked to people who have said that very thing to me. I can't really afford to give right now. These Macedonians gave out of their poverty. Jesus Christ left his riches to make us rich. I don't mean to offend anybody, but my analysis and over the years of American Christianity when it comes to giving, we're a bunch of cheapskates. We're a bunch of cheapskates. We follow, the, we follow the American way. <laughs> Americans spend, this is about a two-year-old survey, Americans spend about 14, 12 to 14% of their income on personal recreations, going out to eat, going on vacations, 14%. Americans, not just Christians, they give between 0.4% and 1% to charities. And in that case, in this survey, church would be considered like a charity. So we spend 14% of our income on me having a good time. And I'll throw, there's a, there's a country song, I forget all the lyrics, but um, part of it is, and, and throw a little money in the plate on Sunday. I wonder where that guy got that, whoever the singer was. He got it because that's the practice. No, no, look at this. Paul is using the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to tell us to give to others, to help others, to minister to others. Why the incarnation? Why did Jesus Christ become man? So that you could become rich. And you, Christian, have eternal riches right now. Last passage of scripture and obviously briefer. I say that so you'll, you'll think brief. Well, actually, it's real long. But you'll say, wow, that third point was really short, wasn't it? Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, 4 through 6, have two hand clauses here. 
And it's astounding. And I bet you know what the first application will be. Galatians chapter 4, look at verse 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Okay, so the flow of the passage. When the fullness of the time had come, again, rich word, fullness, which appears in the other two passages, fullness, at exactly the right time. I heard somebody explain it like this, at the exact nanosecond. A nanosecond is the amount of time it takes to blink. Go ahead and blink. God's timing in sending Jesus Christ was that precise. Somebody might think, oh, that's a lot of bull. No, it's not. At the fullness of the time. Again, what does that mean? It means this. When all of the nations, not just Israel, all of the nations, including Israel, had been put in the right place with the right leaders, with the right economic policies, with the right other policies at just exactly the right time, when the right Caesar was ruling, when Herod was ruling, when all the sub-rulers were ruling, when Annas and Ananias were the high priests, should have only been one, but they were acting like two, when all of these details came about, when all of the apostles had been born and they were being raised or they were about to be born, when those conditions came about at exactly the right moment, conception in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. I spoke with a gas station owner two Tuesdays ago. He's a very jovial man. And he always says, God bless you. God bless you. Buy something. Walk. God bless you. Have a good day. So a week ago Tuesday, I asked him, I said, you always say, God bless you. And I appreciate that very much. I said, are you a Christian? Oh, no. He's very jovial. Oh, no. He said, I don't go to church. I don't go to synagogue. I don't do these other things. Just God is, I'll shorten it. God is just kind of everything. God is just, he's just God. <laughs> and I said to him, well, can God be one thing and the opposite at the same time? And he went just like this. God, he's, he's God. And he emphasized, I don't go to church, I don't go to synagogue. He's God. No. This is the God. This is the God who orchestrates the flow of history. Paul says in Acts chapter 17, he establishes the times and limitations of our inhabitation. Do you know why you're alive today and I'm alive today? Because we are within the bounds of God's habitation for us at this time. Remarkable. At the fullness of the time, God sent forth his son. He sent his son, born of a virgin, born of a woman. Why? Well, because in Genesis, when Eve sinned, Adam sinned, when humanity fell, God says in the proto-euangelion, the first promise of the gospel, he says, a seed will come of the woman. Here it is. You've got to be kidding me. That was 14 generations and 14 generations and 14 generations and sometime before that that God said that. And here it is. Here he is. 
Born of a woman, born under the law. Why? Because the law is a reflection of the character of God. And we are to be like God, and we are not like God. So we needed a law keeper. We needed one who would come and keep the law in total and absolute perfection, not just externally, but his heart would be in keeping the law. And God sent that one in Jesus Christ. Psalm chapter 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is written upon my heart. But then why did he do it? Here's the first hint of clause. To redeem. The purpose in sending the one at the fullness of time was to redeem. That was this, to pay the price. It's an economic word. You go to the store, you buy something, you give them the money for it. To pay the price, to redeem, to buy these people back. That's the first hint of clause. And do you know, we often stop right there. Christ came to redeem. Hold it. That's not what Paul says. It doesn't stop there. He did come to redeem, but did you notice the second hint of clause? He came to redeem those who were under the law. Hina, in order that, what? What's it say there? We might receive the adoption. God just didn't send Jesus Christ. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? Just didn't send Jesus Christ to redeem. He redeemed us so he could adopt us. Without redemption, no adoption. What are the part of these riches that make us rich? We are adopted. God is our Father. I can talk to him any time of the day. I can talk to him while I'm working. I can talk to him while I'm, I wake up in the night. I can talk to him while I'm sitting on the deer stand begging him for a great big buck to come by and to direct my shot. I think maybe if, if God ever tires of anything, he tires of me asking him for that big buck. <laughs> but, but take this in. Two purpose clauses in sending his son to redeem us, to buy us back from our sin and from condemnation and eternal punishment. And he redeems us for this. And once we're redeemed, he says, I'm adopting you. You're in my family. Three applications. What's the first one? Be amazed. Be amazed. It is amazing. Like those, those shepherds who, in the field, when the angels appeared, proclaiming Messiah's birth, they must have been absolutely dumbfounded. The, the angels in Scripture are not cute little cuddly things. They're not the... They're not the figurines of precious moments. They're terrifying. And that's why in Matthew 1, when the angel appears, he says to Joseph, don't be afraid. And in Luke 1, when the angel appears to Mary, he says, don't be afraid. Because what would, what would be the natural response? Terrified. Be amazed. Oh, y'all, be amazed. <laughs> Maybe one of the plagues on the church in our time and that the world sees is we're not amazed with who God is. Secondly, what? Worship. Thirdly, delight in your adoption. Delight in your adoption. God sacrificed his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that he could adopt you as his child. Those are purposes of the incarnation, an incarnation with intent. Let's pray together. 
Lord our God, we praise you that you are a God who does everything with purpose and intent. There is nothing done capriciously. There is nothing done haphazardly. You do with purpose and intent, and we praise you that you are a God who accomplishes your will. We thank you that all that took place at the birth of Christ was according to your word, what you spoke through the prophet. It was all fulfilled, and thus we can sink our faith deeply in you and trust your word. We thank you, O Father, that the Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet he became poor, that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. We praise you for that, and we ask that we might use our riches as he used his riches. And we thank you, O God, that you have redeemed us through sending your Son in the likeness of human flesh, under the law, born of a woman, to redeem us, to pay the price of our sin, to claim us for yourself, so that you could adopt us as your children. Help us to be amazed at these things. Help us to worship you. Help us to live in accordance with them. We pray in the glorious name of Christ. Amen.